We're in the Gospel according to John. Let me read, and it's a short passage of Scripture, just a few verses, then we'll dismiss the kids. Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel account, one gospel, and his name is Jesus. Yeah, all right. John chapter 20, hear the word of the Lord. Verse, uh, let's see, we're going to start at verse 19. On the evening of that day, first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Interesting passage of scripture that we will tackle verse by verse. So kids, you're dismissed. Everyone else, open your Bibles. Keep your Bibles open to John. There's Bibles in the back. If you need one, just grab one. If you don't have one, take it. It's yours to keep from us. The Gospel according to John, eyewitness account, the Apostle John, yet the Bible says that it was exhaled, breathed out by God, inspired by God. The Gospel account, this Gospel that you have in your hand, is exactly and precisely what Jesus said he was going to do. John 14, he said that he will bring, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you, he will lead you, and he will bring back to remembrance all that I have said to you. And as we wrap up this account, that's exactly what's happening. The perfect life, the atoning work, the resurrection of the grave. We're ending this series with several post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Today we're looking at the evening of the first day. John makes it very clear. Sunday evening, the evening of the resurrection. Jesus had already seen several women. He saw he was alive at some point. He saw Peter. And according to Luke 24... We're going to be there a little bit today. I don't like to bring in other gospel accounts, but we're going through John. It's okay to do that, but it's important we do that today. In Luke 24, there are two disciples. You know this story, Clopas and some other disciple left Jerusalem. They're headed to Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Jesus shows up while they're walking, and it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jesus comes alongside them, and hears them talking. He says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Like, oh, there was this prophet, he was mighty in deed and word, and before God, and the chief priest took him and, and had him delivered, and, and they crucified him, they condemned him to death. But we had hoped, these disciples are saying, on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, we had hoped that he was the, the redeemed one from Israel. But now it was three days, they said. Some women saw him early in the tomb, they're saying they saw him alive, but the body they can't find. Some angels are even testifying that Jesus is alive. And as Jesus is walking with these two men uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, he turns to them and he says this, Luke 24, 25. This is Sunday late afternoon. O foolish ones of slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things that is said about himself. 
Then they, when he was done, they urged him to say, they said, stay with us for a little bit longer. Uh, stay with us. And Jesus said, okay. And he sits down at the table. It says in, in Luke, verse 30, took bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. What was once closed was now opened. And they recognized him. And then Jesus vanished from their sight. They said to each other, our hearts burned within us as we, as we talked with him along the road, as he opened the scripture to us. And then it says, this is important, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, they found the 11 were there and others were there, small crowd gathering, and they said, we've seen the Lord and and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how Jesus was made known to them through the breaking of the bread. It's important to see that. It's important to see that they're back in Jerusalem in Luke 24 in the evening, Sunday evening, and John 20 is the same account. It's Sunday night. Each account told from a different perspective, rightfully so. When two people give an accurate account of something that happens, you get a different perspective. So the men are gathered, the disciples, some other disciples, the 11 plus others, and the road from Emmaus, those two disciples are together in a room. Luke 24, keep your finger there as we go through John 20, okay? Because we're going to go back to that as well. Here's our outline. Four headings. Presence in fear, peace in hostility, purpose in life, and power in mission, okay? So we have presence in fear, peace in hostility, purpose in life, power in mission. Number one, look at the presence in fear. On the evening of that day, all right, we're talking about the same night that we read in Luke 24. Now it's John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So here are the men that had run for their lives when Jesus was arrested. Among them was Peter, the one who denied the Lord three times. And there they are in fear behind locked doors. The door's locked. Now, this ain't the kind of lock that I have on my office door that half the church knows how to break in. And those of you who have been there, you know. (laughs) These are bolted with large bolts, and they have these long bars that would go through the the back of the door, through the rings that would be on on the door and on the actual frame. The doors are locked. Every... Crick, a creak in the wood or in the house, every door on the, uh, every knock on the door, there was fear. The authorities had already arrested Jesus, right? The authorities had already tried Jesus in a mock court and then crucified him. But now it's Sunday evening, the body's gone. He's missing. You can only imagine the panic of fear that came over, not fear, but the panic and the anger that came over the authorities who thought they got rid of him and now the body's gone. Why not take it out on the followers of this itinerant preacher named Jesus? Fear is a very powerful emotion. Fear is a very powerful emotion. Have you ever been truly terrified or afraid? Dr. Neil Anderson, in his book called Freedom from Fear, wrote this. He said, fear is a thief. It erodes our faith, 
plunders our hopes, steals, steals our freedom, and takes away our joy of living the abundant life in Christ. Phobias can be like coils of a snake. The more we give in to them, the, more tight, the tighter they squeeze. Tired of fighting, we succumb to the temptation and surrender to our fears. What seemed like an easy way out becomes in reality a prison of unbelief, a fortress of fear that holds us captive, end quote. Now, now we're talking about good and healthy fear, right? We're not talking about things that are, are dangerous to do that you could wind up, as I have, in the emergency room. Those types of fears don't, uh, you know, are not to deter us, but they help us. They're there for, for a purpose. We're talking about the fear of man that prevents faith in God. We're talking about the fear of man that prevents faith in God, the paralyzing fear that keeps us from moving toward God and resting in God, but away from God. And sometimes when the fear of man or the fear that's unhealthy comes over us, we are paralyzed, we are tapped, we are without strength. It causes us to run from God. Maybe this morning there are fears that you may have. Fear of, of, of money maybe related or fear of health issues or, or fear that is deep down inside that people don't see but you know is there. Fear like having a fear of failure, a fear of loneliness, a fear of rejection. Fear that someone might see you exactly how you really are. But look at the text. Look at the love and the beauty and the grace of Jesus. He doesn't come to them in their midst and says, why are you guys so afraid? You guys are afraid of authorities. You should be afraid of me. You left me hanging. I mean, literally and physically. I'm not happy with you, you unbelieving cowards. When are you going to get it together? But rather than rebuking them, the love and grace of God is extended to them. And he shows up. We don't know exactly. We know from last week, we, we looked at other parts of Scripture, Jesus rose from the dead bodily. He had a barbecue going. He eats fish, but yet he comes walking through this locked door. Now, John goes to great length, not only in our text, but in verse 26, to talk about the doors were locked. He's stressing it to show the miraculous nature of Jesus appearing to his followers. Just as his resurrection body passed through the grave clothes, in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 20, it passed through the locked door. It just materialized. It's like, you know, it's where Star Trek, the transporter room, just showed up. It's not like Lazarus' body. Lazarus rose from the grave, but he died again. Jesus rose from the grave and has a glorified body that will never die again. And what we need from God at the moment of our greatest fear is his presence. And because uh, because he alone has the ultimate power, he alone is sovereign, he alone has the power over life, death, and judgment. Jesus, because Jesus bears the penalty of our sins, bears the judgment, he alone can give us what our souls need most, and that is himself. The presence of Jesus Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Not your righteous right hand. His righteous right hand. What Jesus is doing here, 
and promise to do for us who believe is come to us when we are afraid. He's not holding on to our stupidity that we've done, waiting for us to get it right, get your act together. He doesn't even wait until we get over our fears, but he comes in his presence and gives us the faith we need as we see him to overcome fear. The risen Christ is still doing this this morning. He he comes when we cry out. He helps us in our fears. Do you experience the living Jesus when you are afraid? As wonderful, listen, as wonderful as it was in that day to have Jesus physically materialize while you were afraid, how much more wonderful is it when Jesus comes and stands in the midst of us and comes into us by his word and through his spirit and stands in us? John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to ask the Father. He'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. The world can't receive it because it neither sees him or knows him, but you will know him. How? He will dwell with you and be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, Jesus says. Jesus can come and draw near to us. Jesus can come and draw near to us in our life, in our fears, as no one else can. Not speaking from a distance, but speaking through his word, by his spirit, in our souls. Presence in fear. Look at the peace and hostility. I use the word hostility purposely. It's not only the hostility the disciples uh, sensed that, that made them fear, That's why they were locked behind doors by the authorities. There's a bigger and much greater problem of hostility that's between a holy God and a sinful people. If God were to show up tonight in your room, what you want to hear from him is peace be with you. That's what you want to hear. Not judgment has come. Peace, grace, be with you, right? The Hebrew word for peace here is that word shalom, typical greeting when people would meet one another, but there's some differences here. Number one, we're not saying it to each other. The word shalom here is God saying it to us. Number two, if you read the Old Testament, many times God would show up and it would go bad. People would die and like melt down. But what's most important about this is you have to realize uh, historically this is This is after Friday night or Friday afternoon. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. The work of atonement completed. He rose from the dead, proof that God's justice was satisfied. His sin-bearing work was accepted. Therefore, he comes and he first thing he says is, peace, shalom be upon you. Well, the New Testament is crystal clear. We have peace with God Because of Jesus. We have peace with God because of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. Colossians, Paul tells us that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, that's plural, y'all, meaning us, who once were, that's us, alienated and hostile in mind, 
doing evil deeds, that's all of us, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. The peace that Jesus brought was not first between people or a peace that's even within us. It's a peace that is between us and God. There was an unreconciled relationship with our creator because of sin, and the greatest need we have is reconciliation. Paul tells us that we were all alienated and hostile in mind, all of us doing evil deeds. The dictionary defines alienation as to be estranged or to withdraw, emotional isolation, dissociation. And the Bible said that apart from God, apart from Christ, apart from his work of grace, we are all hostile in our minds against God. While God loves us and cherishes us, he is also repulsed and filled with indignation because of our sinfulness and our rebellion. But Jesus dies on the cross, it is finished, shows up and says, peace. Dr. Carson writes this very insightful truth, short truth. He says, Jesus' shalom on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation life from God has now been imparted. End quote. The Bible tells us that our primary problem as people, as human beings, the primary problem of, of, our, of our condition, of our heart, is not ignorance that we need more information or, or, or indifference that we need to be motivated. The Bible tells us that the primary condition of our heart is sinful hostility toward God. And our greatest need is that reconciliation. Even in our own community, we know when the laws are broken, there's unreconciled condition, right? We know that debt needs to be paid, we, and, and yet we don't want to equate that with God who is holy and just. If you hurt someone, the judge will tell you. You're not in reconciliation with your community. There's a pet, a, a debt that needs to be paid, and we pay that debt. You now reconcile to the community. We wouldn't have a society, a culture without that reality. And the truth is we all owe to society uh, to God, who is holy and just and perfect. And the debt's paid by Christ. He reconciles us. You know, the, whole, the, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, if you're familiar with the sacrificial system, it, it, it's, it's really basically to show the Israelites that, that you just cannot approach a holy, hot, pure, righteous God in your own way, in your own righteousness. We don't have any. It's to show us that sin is serious. It's cosmic treason. And that when Christ came and died, he brings us into the relationship, reconciled relationship with the Father. All your sins, all your sins are forgiven. It's, it, it, it's not up to us. It's the work that God does for us. I read a story this week about a battleship in USS uh, Missouri in Tokyo Bay off the coast of Japan. And General Douglas MacArthur, MacArthur was the commander of the armed forces and he received a, a symbol of surrender from the Japanese people. And Japan had made it decisively, de- was defeated in the war in the Pacific. And when they surrendered on this occasion, uh, they surrendered on American terms. Whenever you have wars and you have surrendering, you don't come to the table and go, all right, here's the terms that I want. You just come and say... I've lost, you win. You know, in the same way, we don't come to God and saying, I have some righteousness for you and let's work this out. I'll do for you, you do for me. Maybe we, we come and say, I've sinned against you 
and we throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of God. And the good news is that God loves you. The good news is that God's grace is sufficient for you. The good news is that he'll have mercy on those who call upon him. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Christ loves you, died for you, rose for you, forgives you, reconciles you to the Father. That's the good news. If it was work-related and something that there's a bargain, that's not good news. That's a treadmill. The good news is God is saying, if you want my peace, you receive it the way I provided for it, and that's Jesus Christ, man. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, forgiven, just, reconciled, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We talked about that last week. We've been justified by faith and faith alone. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. His presence calms our fears because of the assurance that the sacrifice was accepted. We can now have peace with God. So Jesus, verse 19, preaches peace, comes and stands among them and says to them again, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus shows him the scars. I, I don't think that he showed him the scars and said, all right, listen, you dummies, look what, you, look, look what I did for you. Although it showed, about his, it showed his suffering, right? Look, look at my suffering. But it showed him victory. It showed them victory. It showed them that it is true. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. Believe, touch, see, feel. And it says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, order is very important, right? So there's fear. fear the stricken by fear. He, he declares peace. And then after he declares peace, he shows himself. And what happens? There's joy. There's gladness. You, you've risen from the dead. The justice of God is satisfied. We have peace with God, and now we have the peace of God. There's joy. Uh, there's gladness, it says. Luke says, joy came over them. You see that? The peace with God, and now the peace of God. And now it, this, this order is beautiful. Now we have the purpose of God. Look at, look at the pur- verse 21. Jesus said to them again, this is the second time, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So he repeats himself again. He comes to them and says, peace be with you, brings his presence. He, he brings peace by the cross. He gives them peace within them. And they're, they're happy, they're joyful, they're glad. He's like, you need my peace and fear. You need my, my, my peace and gladness. But ultimately, ultimately, my peace is going to sustain you in my purpose, okay? So you need peace and fear and in gladness, but ultimately, my peace is going to sustain you in my purpose. And what is that? Look what it says. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Don't mean we're the saviors of the world. Some people try to be the savior of the world. You're not. Jesus came into the world as the unique son of God, the lamb of God, the only incarnate word of God. Jesus was not only obedient to the father, without wavering, he was obedient. He was empowered by the spirit. He was given a task and the spirit empowered him to accomplish the work that the father gave him to do. He was obedient to the Father, but he was also what? Dependent upon his Father. He prayed. He went to the Father. He was empowered by the Father. And listen, as children of God, we have been sealed and sanctified and set apart. And we need to grow. Jesus didn't grow, but we need to grow in our sanctification. He was just sanctified. We need to grow in our setting apart from sin and setting apart to God. We need to grow in our dependence upon the Father. 
He was ultimately all the time dependent, but we are growing in those areas. So this is not replacement theology. Now all of a sudden Jesus is gone, and that's it. He's gone, and now we take over, and we're now, we are doing on our own what Jesus left us to do. That's not what's happening here. Carson again. Thus Christ's disciples do not take over Jesus' mission. His mission continues and is effective in their ministry. The disciples of Jesus, that's you and I, are drawn into the unity and the, and, and the mission of the Father and the Son. John 17, Jesus prayed that prayer. Do you remember? He's talking to the Father. And, and, and he's praying that they would, they would go, they would be sent for the purpose of mission. And now we have the command. He prays in John 17 to the Father that as the Father sent me, Father send them. And now he's saying, listen, that, that prayer is coming true. You need to go. You're commanded to go. Okay, following that? The word sent, missio, the missio Dei, the mission of God. Apostolo in the Greek, missio in Latin. Jesus saying, I'm a man on mission and I'm sending you on mission. It's where we get the word missionary. Sent ones. Okay, this is not a vote in the church. Okay, we, we don't go, you know what, let's get together, let's have a corporate meeting, and let's decide, are we going to live on mission or not? Everybody raise your hands. That's not, that's, this is not an option. This is the command of Jesus to live on mission. As the sun loses its burn, ceases to be the sun, a church who loses its focus on mission ceases to be a healthy church. We experience peace with God, then the peace of God, then we're prepared to take on the mission of God. Why is that important? Because if you take on the mission of God without having peace with God through the cross and the peace of God because of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be trying to do, to do, to do, to do. I'm on mission. I got to do this. I got to do this. Because if I keep doing this, I'm going to have peace. That's not, that's, that's, that's religion. That's not the gospel. The gospel is I have peace with God, have the peace of God, and now through that empowered to live on mission with God. If you get that backward, you're in trouble. If you get that backward, you're in trouble. It's not an add-on program to the church, right? Well, our mission statement, right on the wall. We exist to glorify God by living on mission with him in making disciples through gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. God wants us to live for the purpose of his glory. The church exists to live for the purpose of his glory. The the beauty, the majesty, the incalculable worth of God seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Can, Can we all agree, you don't have to raise your hand, but can we all agree that the church is not wood, a building? Can we all agree that the church is the people, right? Everyone, everywhere, throughout the history of the world who have been brought into union by the work of Jesus make up the church. It's the people, whether we gather outside or inside. We all, we all agree with that, right? Every follower is not his own. The Bible says we were bought with a price. Glorify your body, he says. So my point in saying all that is we as Christ followers have the ultimate purpose of glorifying God and the first and foremost primary way of doing that is joining him on the mission of God, seeking and saving the lost. This is done through the proclamation of the gospel, both in word and deed. And it will not happen unless we're intentional. I need you to see this this morning. It will not happen unless we are intentional about our efforts to live as missionaries for God, demonstrating, declaring Jesus as king, died 
Rose reconciles us to the Father. In our homes, in our, to our friends, our children, our neighbors, co-workers, fellow students, waitresses, mailmen, wherever it is. You hear us talk about being missional. We're a missional church. Missional means we're just looking for ways to tell others about Jesus, to see their sins forgiven and reconciled to our God, looking for ways of doing what is called what we are called to do and the purposes, whether it's school, whether it's a life on a soccer field, whether it's work, engaging your neighbors, grocery store clerks, the same Dunkin' Donuts guy you see every day. You are called into the life of Christ and then sent out as missionaries to declare and demonstrate the good news. Is that what's on your heart when you wake up in the morning? It's on God's heart. He's the missionary God. Are you praying for those that you come in contact with every day that an opportunity will open up and that your eyes are open spiritually to see whether God opens that opportunity? Every single child is a missionary. Every single child of God is a missionary. Have you, you don't have to raise your hand, but some of you, as I have, been to short-term mission trips. One of the things that stuck out to me when I went there, as soon as the plan lands, whether it's in the United States or outside the United States, when you're sent someplace for the purpose of being a missionary, when you get there, everything changes for you. You're like, everything you do is about the gospel. You know, you're you're looking at culture, you're trying to read people, you're looking for opportunities, make connections, like that's what you're there for. And then when you come home, the plan lands, and then you're just back to the grind every day. You see the problem with that? Do, Do you see the problem with that? You know, it's like a fish swimming in the water doesn't realize it's in the water. That's just an analogy. I never asked the fish, but I think they don't think, hey, I'm in the water, okay? We don't realize we're forgetting that we're missionaries with great and glorious news. And what is that news? Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The message. That's the gospel. It doesn't mean Jesus gave a certain apostle the right and authority to forgive sins, as some teach. Okay? No one forgives sins against God, but God alone. God alone forgives sins against him. Remember, it's not just the apostles that are there. There are the apostles there, other people there, and the, peop- the two guys from Emmaus are there. He's making this announcement. Jesus is announcing the truth of the new covenant of forgiving sins, and how the fellowship, excuse me, Jesus is announcing the truth of the new covenant of forgiveness. He's given his followers the, the obligation and the opportunity and the privilege of announcing how a person can receive forgiveness of sins, go into all the world. Now, the Greek verb there is in the perfect tense. And, and that, that verb, properly translated, I don't know why, the, the New American Standard, if you have an NAS, is properly translated. The ESV doesn't pick it up. In the ESV, it says, if you forgive the sins of any, the Greek verb there, they have been forgiven. That's what a perfect tense Greek verb is. They have been forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it has been withheld. The Greek verb is, is com- what's been done. It's completed in the past, and it has res- uh, this continuing results in the future. In fact, the verb emphasizes not only just the past action, but the, the, the state of affairs at that moment from what happened. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is when you tell somebody who's come to faith in me, their sins are forgiven, you can declare that. 
because I've already died for their sins. If they reject the message, you could tell them, your sins are not forgiven. Just so you know, there's only one way. And you have, to, you have to confess and repent of your sins and trust Jesus. If you do not, then you know what? Your sins are not forgiven. It doesn't mean we walk around playing God. It's a simple declaration of truth. If you remember, Jesus gave the apostles uh, uh, the authority to go into the cities. He said, when you go into the cities, proclaim the good news. Preach the kingdom. Those who accept you, stay. Those who reject you, let the dust fall off your feet as you leave. It's a proclamation. It's, it's a declaratory role. God forgives. Now, some people in some traditions, and, and we're studying the Reformation, Catholicism and some other people believe that somebody has the right to do that. That, that, that the, whether it's the Pope, whether it's other people, they, they have given the authority and the exclusive right to make that announcement. We know that Peter, according to Catholicism, is the first Pope. So he first had that authority. Okay. Well, if you believe that, let me let Peter tell you what he believes and what he heard Jesus say that day. We have it. Acts chapter 10. Peter's in Cornel- Peter is at the house of Cornelius, the Italian cohort. He received a vision a, day, a couple days before, and he goes to this house. He gathers all the people together, and this is what he says, the apostle Peter. We are witnesses, Acts 10.39. We are witnesses of all that Jesus did. They put him to death, hung him on a tree, God raised him on the third day and made him appear. We saw him. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. They had a barbecue with him, right? And he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay, Peter, how about Paul? The Apostle Paul, chapter 13, he's on a missionary journey. Let this be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Peter and Paul understood it is a message. It is the message. Only Christ forgives. Turn with me to Luke. We're going to jump into our next and last point. But turn to me with Luke for a moment. Again, the same evening, remember. Luke chapter 24. Road to Emmaus already took place. The guys run off, leave Emmaus, run back to Jerusalem. They're they're together with the apostles. There's a group of people who knows how many. Probably, I don't know, 15, 20 people. Verse 24 of Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus speaking. These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written, this is, this is the locked door, this is Sunday night, everything that was written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Christ command to to proclaim forgiveness of sins through repentance is clear. 
in his name, in his character, in his purpose, for his fame. Repent of sin, believe on him, and you will be forgiven. Now, John goes one step further. So he, he wants to make it clear what our ultimate purpose is, but he wants to make sure that it's not done in our own strength but in the power of God. Look at, look finally with me at the last one, the power of mission. Now, keep your finger there in Luke 24 and go back to John. Okay, same, same time frame. In verse 22 of John, chapter 20, verse 22, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So after Jesus gives himself, shows himself, grants them peace, tells them the purpose is mission, he breathes and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He's making sure that they proclaim the gospel, not in their power, but in his power. Now, there's some who think that when Jesus said he breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit, that John is not being very chronological, but being theological. Okay, what I mean by that is, we know on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Father and the Son send the promised Holy Spirit that comes upon the church, seen with tongues and fire, and now they're, they're, they're empowered to proclaim the gospel. Doesn't happen until Acts 2. They're still scared after this event, at least to some degree. Because Jesus said, wait. So some say, well, John, you know what? He threw in in Pentecost early. He's just being theological. I don't think so. I, I don't think that's the case. Some people also say that it, you know, it actually is Pentecost, he's just confused. Or not, it, it, it's symbolic of the Pentecost. So he's, he's kind of just doing a symbolic, you know, he's breathing on them, nothing really happened, and, you know, just kind of getting ready for Pentecost. So either he's confused or it's strictly symbolic. Now, I don't want to confuse you, but if you look at Luke 24, verse 45... And I'm going to explain this in a minute. In John 20, 22, I think it becomes clear. Now, let me break it down to you. In Luke 22, 45, in this upper room discourse, while the rooms are locked, it says, then Jesus opened their minds to understand, understand the scripture and explains to them the mission of declaring and demonstrating the gospel. That's Luke chapter 22, verse 45 following. Opens their mind, understands, and then he explained the mission. John says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. At that point, he explained to them the mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel. I think what's happening is John is making it very clear that Jesus has the power and authority to extend spiritual enlightenment to his followers. You remember Philip, uh, excuse me, Peter? Uh, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus like, great, you didn't figure that out. My father gave it to you. That was a spiritual enlightenment by the father. Now we have Jesus doing the same thing. And John goes to great lengths to say that Jesus is God, fully God, eternally God. The second one of the second person of the Trinity. And here he's making it clear that Jesus imparts life as well. But remember, we're, we're still not at Pentecost. That's 50 days, well, yeah, 50 days later. He walked on earth for 40, 10 more days, Pentecost, Pente, 50, the Spirit is poured out. We're still under the Old Testament. We're still under the dispensation of the Old Testament. And something radically changes with the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to get into that. At Pentecost, he is sealing believers. He is, he is empowering believers. Something radically has changed with the way in which the Spirit ministers in the world at Pentecost. But it wasn't like he wasn't around in the Old Testament 
during Jesus' day, empowering Jesus, he's still present. He's God, the third person of the Trinity. So this is not Pentecost, but yes, I believe this is the work of the Holy Spirit, opening the minds of the apostles, pre-Pentecost, to understand the deep truths of the gospel. There's a spiritual enlightenment going on, a pre-Pentecost enlightenment. John Calvin writes this, the Spirit was given to the apostles on this occasion in such a manner that they were only sprinkled by His grace but were not filled with full power. For when the Spirit appeared on them in tongues of fire in Acts 2, they were entirely renewed. I think think that's absolutely right. Jesus commanded His followers to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was present. And then He would empower the church to live on mission. We are obviously post Pentecost. Luke says, wait on high. He begins the second book, which is Acts, wait on high. You know, we love to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and we should. We're going to do a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we should. But when we receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, and we are commanded to be continually filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, the foundational reality of that is we are on mission. There's ascending, empowering that Christ wants to do in your life. God wants to do that in your life. In fact, the word breathe is, is from the Greek Old Testament, uh, Genesis 2, 7, and God breathed into man and became a living being. Jesus is breathed on them, opening their minds, showing them this pre-Pentecost endowment that they are going to be empowered to live on mission. Listen, the church, you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, have purpose. It's called the Missio Dei, the mission of God. He wants to work in us and through us. Those who are brought into fellowship and union with Christ are now being sent into the world. You need to see that this morning. You need to see the work of Christ in your life. You need to see what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. This is not optional. This communion table is about declaring the good news of Jesus. We gather together as a corporate people to gather and we, and we take the bread which represents his body that was broken. The, the cup is the blood that was shed for our sins. And if you're not a believer here this morning, we preach the gospel to you. If you refuse to come to Jesus, if you refuse to confess your sins and turn from your sins and believe on Jesus who died for your sins, your sins are not forgiven I'm not going to personally tell you whether they are not. That's between you and God. But I can say Jesus is the only way that you can be reconciled to a holy God. He died for your sins. He rose to justify you and make you right. If you've never done that, today's the day. The Holy Spirit move in your heart. And you could take communion if you have trusted Christ. If you have not and you're not here, we're still glad you're here. We love you. We want to keep talking with you. We want you to keep coming back. Because we want to keep, we're not going to be, you know, it's not, it's not, something we hide in the closet. We love you. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to have your sins forgiven. And if you're a follower of Christ, are you living on mission? Are you living on mission? Let the gospel of grace propel you. Let the, let the bread and the cup in which we will all confess our sins, we will all repent of our sins, we'll all come to the table and celebrate forgiveness, but let the love of God, let the grace of God fill your heart and propel you to tell others about his love and grace. That's what mission's about. It's about overflowing with love and grace and mercy and wanting to see people brought to fellowship and community and reconciliation with God. So the band's gonna come up. We're gonna 
quietly in our seat, confess of our sins. And then repent, which means to turn from them. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. His body that was broken, his blood that was shed. And then let's leave this place on mission. Let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. God would open doors and we would take those opportunities together. Father, we have been reconciled to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been brought into relation in vital union with you, Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. You sent your promised Holy Spirit to empower us, to bring us into vital union, to have Christ live in us. We thank you for the gifts you've given us. We thank you that we are uh, exhibiting fruit for your glory, Lord, but we want to be filled so that we can be on mission. Help us this week to pray, to seek, to look, to have spiritual eyes open, to demonstrate love to those around us, and to declare the truth of Christ in kindness, generosity, in mercy, but not in fear. In hope, we pray in Jesus' name.